0: Good afternoon, this is Ron Falk for the American Society of Nephrology and we're on day two of this wonderful Kidney Week 2012. Happily many people who were trapped in the Northeast have come through and have managed to get into San Diego weather is beautiful, and the excitement in the poster and exhibit hall is substantial. So it has been a great meeting so far. Today I have with me three people, and I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves.
1: I'm Julie Engelfinger. I'm from Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School.
2: Raj Mirotra, Harborview Medical Center, University of Washington.
3: I'm Toby Huber from the University Medical Center Freiburg in Germany.
0: Julie, what was the most interesting thing you have seen or done since you've been here?
1: Well, I think it's a toss-up. There were several. I found this morning's talk by Ernest Wright to be really exciting, and perhaps for an odd reason. When I was a trainee, I followed identical twin girls who had something that was called and diabetes because it was as if they'd had fluorescent. And at that time, none of the glucose transporters had been cloned, and we simply knew that what they had was very rare, and we thought it was a transporter, and I moved away, so I don't know what happened to them. But hearing this morning's talk, which went from the first cloning of an SGLT-1 and 2 to potential treatment of diabetes with an agent that would interfere with the function of such a transporter, I found very exciting because it went essentially from, in my head, patient to bench in the talk and then maybe back to patients. And it was translational and exciting.
0: The sodium-glucose a transporter that we all learned about in medical school came alive with his description of the structure and cloning it and even very specific amino acid residues that were critical for its function. It was was a beautiful talk. If I could
2: just add to that, what impressed me the most about that talk was the fact that you could actually do an imaging test to identify where the receptors were and that you actually did not need to go and do tissue histology and cloning in individual tissues to identify its location with the use of the glucose PET. It just told me uh, how far we've moved in terms of identifying the location of receptors that we can actually take an imaging test to find it. Yes,
0: from really a mouse image to a human image, (laughs) and as any... Interesting investigator. The original study with that image was done on Dr. Wright himself. Yeah, uh, interestingly enough, what did you find fun over the last few days?
2: And the talk that followed was actually set the stage for healthcare system in the United States. We are at a moment of change, and it was while we are in the middle of an election. It was very wonderful to be able to step back and frame the issues that are important for healthcare, which are lost in the political debate that is ongoing at this time. To recognize that there is a need to acknowledge that we are not there with regards to providing the best healthcare for every individual, but also recognizing at the other end that there is a cost problem that cannot continue to escalate at the rate at which it is. So the last point of which was that we absolutely have to reconfigure our healthcare system in how we think and deliver care so that we can give the best healthcare to all. I found it gratifying to hear that.
0: This is the first time there has been a policy discussion in the midst of an ASN plenary session. What you're suggesting is that was probably something interesting at this point in time.
2: Oh, absolutely was, given the fact that we are in election season. I think that is extremely timely. Hopefully, ASN set the tone for the discussion moving forward once we passed the election period.
1: This was a very good keystone address to perhaps galvanize Mm -hmm. the very different groups of people who are nephrologists or researchers in kidney disease to take action.
0: So from the perspective of somebody who hails from Germany, what was your impression of that discussion?
3: So I think the, the healthcare problems are very similar all over the world. So we are struggling with our healthcare system in Germany with very similar problems. With increasing costs with a population that is getting um, older and older and needs more care. With a medicine that has more and more options and possibility to treat, but we don't know how to pay for it. So we need to carefully reform our healthcare system and to consider ways and and options how to keep the system financeable. It's uh,
0: disconcerting, though, to realize that we think our patients understand issues, that one provider may be better than another provider, that one hospital may be better than another hospital, that we think that patients may not want a lot of tests done, but really they may want everything done, that disconnect between what we as healthcare uh, physicians think and what the at least the American public thinks was shocking, yeah, to say the least.
2: It, what it taught me also is that, it, it's something that I've recognized
0: for a while, but uh,
2: clearly galvanized that thought process is that we physicians need to take the leadership role in educating our patients in terms of uh, what level of care is appropriate at what level of disease. And health.
1: I think another aspect of that is the fact that as physicians in this system, we don't have so much time. And I think the whole concept that has been brought forth, and you did in your talk, that we need to be part of a team approach. Right. And certainly as a pediatric nephrologist mm-hmm. interested in transitioning patients with chronic conditions to their adult life and being seen in an internal medicine nephrology or general practice it takes more than a physician can do and i think there are many tools now available and i'm excited to see some of the sessions and posters that really begin to address this issue
0: what did you find most exciting and interesting over the last day or two
3: as always and i'm coming to base and for ten years now i do love the poster sessions i think this is a truly unique place where Opinions, thoughts can be exchanged in a maybe worldwide unique manner because senior people, junior people, students, scientists from all over the world come together. And I've seen this happening today with a few very nice examples, for example, in the poster session for cumulative diseases, when Marilyn Farquhar and Wilhelm Kritz who are kind of the legends in our field and have been driving the ideas for six decades now showed up to discuss their thoughts with all the young people on the posters and this was extremely lively and unique and I enjoyed it very much to be part of this.
0: It's important for experienced investigators to go to the posters and interact with young trainees. It makes The young trainee feel that what they're doing is really important and it probably informs the older investigator where the field is going.
2: In talking about the posters, I was gratified to see residents and the students that are there at the ASN meeting being taken around by the training program directors to posters and for, for them to learn what is new in nephrology, for them to develop an interest in nephrology, and I think it blends very well with what the mission of ASN is in terms of increasing interest in nephrology.
1: also the poster session is a time where it can be vibrant and interactive in another way, and that is, we need to increase person power in our field, mm-hmm. and there's no better place um, to have a free interchange and to tell people who might be at their very first scientific meeting ever, this can be fun. Clinical investigation can be amazing and come up with new things, and basic science can go very deeply into something. And even if they don't know anything about what they're going to do, they do feel the excitement and go home and say, yes, I could see that could be me.
0: Right. There's another novelty in this year's ASN which is on the floor. It's called Innovator's Place. It's an environment that was separated from the rest of the exhibit hall by blue tarps, but it was an environment where investigators who did not have FDA approval, primarily of devices, could show their wares and get interested people to help improve whatever they were showing. I'm hoping that Innovator's Place continues to expand. ASN has been a place where a lot of those devices are hidden in hotel suites and don't actually get on the floor. But the more and more of those that are available for us to look at, the better.
1: Is there a plan to have a chat room on the ASN website where the innovators who were in Innovator Place and ones who Um, apply in some way can be there so that people can get together as a social media. Wouldn't that be good? It could continue all year.
0: Sounds like a great idea, especially since Adrienne Lee, our director of communications, loves social media. This would give yet another offering.
1: I tweeted for the first time about a session yesterday. (sighs) Really? Yes, I thought the cystinosis session was wonderful because it started with a very nice history from Bill Gall, who spent much of his professional career studying cystinosis and following people from early childhood to middle age, some of them, and also has done basic research, followed by a wonderful talk about the cloning of cystinosin and then another talk about the partnering of cystinosin and signaling of cystinosin with other entities and the mouse model and different strategies to cure the disease with transplantation. Whether that works or not is a question. It seems to work in part in the mouse. But the exciting part of that is it went from something a long time ago to heading towards a cure.
0: And you learned about corin today. It was
2: an enzyme that I had little familiarity with. And it's an enzyme that breaks pro-ANP to ANP. And uh, there is evidence that uh, corin may play a role in the genesis of hypertension and heart failure. In patients with heart failure, the corin levels are low, as as a result of which they have less ANP and are less able to get rid of salt and water. Variants of corin are seen in African Americans with hypertension and contributes to LVH. And it potentially has a role in uh, inducing preeclampsia. I'd be interested in knowing, f- moving forward, how into interplays with VEGF in inducing preeclampsia.
0: It's nice to come to a meeting and learn about something that you have never even heard about. That is correct. A brand new enzyme. How about you?
3: So I'm just coming from a session of membranous nephropathy, and I think this is a beautiful example of translational science where we discovered the antigen being causative for the disease, a podocyte antigen, PLA, receptor and then learning that there's a genetics behind it, that patients that are having membranous nephropathy have polymorphisms in genes being responsible for this antigen on one this receptor on one side and other genes being responsible for the immune response in an HLA locus. And then going further and seeing that the levels of this antibody against this antigen are significantly being associated with the course of the disease and now going further and, and probably I think that that this will play into the, the management, not only the management, but also the treatment of the disease where we directly might target the cells producing these antibodies. So I think this is, this was a very nice example for translational medicine. With
2: all the advances we've had in understanding the pathophysiology of glomerular disease, uh, it raises a question in terms of how a field is going to look 10 years from now with regards to diagnosis of glomerular diseases. Would we be uh, using biomarkers to establish the diagnosis in lieu of kidney biopsy? We are not there yet in terms of a lot of the glomerular diseases, but clearly we've recognized common themes for vast majority of what we called in the past idiopathic membranous or idiopathic FSGS or with regards to ANCA related glomerulonephritis, nephritis and that really does raise that question moving forward.
0: We're always going to need firm diagnoses as long as we're using potent immunosuppressive drugs. In the ANCA world we've had a serological test that's worked for a long while but as long as we're stuck with drugs that substantially suppress mm-hmm. the immune system and to which there are real complications, uh, which were again discussed today, it's difficult to look at a patient eyeball to eyeball and say, you must take this immunomodulatory drug without being equally sure mm-hmm. that you know the diagnosis. And unfortunately, serological tests, when mixed with immunosuppressive medicine, is a interesting combination.
1: Do you think there will come a time at these meetings where there will, in fact, be trials in which one group is managed classically with a biopsy and the other with a marker that looks good? I think that's a in, wonderful it's, question. I think it's an important question. I think it's important when we think of transplants and rejection. It's important for many glomerular diseases and tubular diseases. I think, as was said, I'd be a little bit too a lot worried to say to a teenager with a transplant, well, we've got this set of five genes that look really great for whether you're going to get acute rejection. So we propose in your case that we're just going to follow those markers if you get by a flip of a coin into group A, but if you're in group B, we'll do a biopsy. And then we'll see how everybody in this study does in 10
0: years. But the biomarker has to be carefully standardized. It has to be reproducible. It has to have been tested. In multiple parts of the world. The tendency has been for us to say that there's a biomarker with no replication study, and even if there is a replication study, there needs to be yet another replication study in another paper done in another portion of the world, and we don't have that rigor yet.
1: I think that's one of the problems with nephrology, actually. Perhaps it's because when you look at a field like cancer, you have tumors you can chop up and look at markers easily. We have a paired organ or a single transplanted organ where people are reluctant to do this. I think we do need test and replication sets in many things, including both molecular studies and now in serologic studies as well. And I think a lot of us are guilty of not doing that of course, I'm not saying that we should not look at studies like that at a meeting where we are seeing new things, but it seems to me that rigor demands that if a polymorphism is discovered in people from Outer Mongolia, it needs to be replicated in another set of people from Outer Mongolia and a set of people in Vermont. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. Absolutely. I mean, it must be rigor with respect to these biomarkers before we start using them clinically. So on Sunday, we get to hear from you with your Young Investigator Award talk. Are you going to give us some clues as to what you're going to talk about?
3: <laughs> yes. So, well, my research has been focusing on cumula biology and chameleon disease. So, I'm going to talk about how we try to understand cumular function, how the filtration and the slit works, and what capability the PoloSight has to maintain itself and to adapt to a changed environment, which I think is the basis of understanding many cumular diseases. I think we have been learning in the past that the PoloSight is a post-mitotic cell, and that there's a very limited capacity for regeneration. So it's important to understand the mechanism that maintains this cell and maintains it in the complex environment of a cumulus.
0: Congratulations for getting that award, though. You have done absolutely beautiful work, so thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Absolutely. We have been all worried about getting the best and brightest into our community. Mm. Uh, one thing is to get numbers into the kidney space, mm-hmm. but really what I think we want across the globe is to have the smartest, the wisest people to study kidney medicine. Are you having that problem in Europe?
3: Yeah, I think it's, it's the same. same yeah. that Less and less people go into nephrology and want to join research for many reasons. I think it's for many reasons. It's for personal reasons that I think the academic medicine is having less attractants because it's, it needs so much investment for personal investment and for academic perspective is less clear than maybe ten or twenty years ago. It's, difficult and getting harder to get funding for research and, and life might be more comfortable in being in a private practice or in in whatever or yeah. a cardiologist. So how would you change that environment in Europe? That's a good question. I think first of all we need to further enforce young people and show them how attractive science is. I think and that's something that we can learn at the ASN meeting. It's a real fun place and it's an arena for innovation and creativity and i think nothing can substitute research and there should be also being a perspective for young people who go into science where can their personal way lead uh, whatever options for them academically or in in pharma industry and other other fields i think This has to be clearly visible and and be demonstrated by also by senior people.
1: It seems to me bringing students, which there's now a mechanism to do, is very important. It seems that if we can get people interested in questions that are answerable when they're in college or even in high school, it can make a huge difference. And I think the fact is that the kidney is such an interesting organ and does so many things it's far more interesting than some other organs that just pump blood around <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me also that we need to encourage people to train in our field and to cross train if you will
0: right we need to bring bring people who are in other fields into kidney and we need, in the kidney space, to make sure that we cross-train outside of our normal disciplines.
2: If I if I may, I think it uh, what is, seems important to me, though, is for there to be professional support at all stages of life, it needs to start at the level of high school and medical students, people looking in residencies, looking for, for training programs, but also for young investigators, to be able to persevere in face of lack of success at a rate at which they would want success to be there. When I was starting up as a young nephrologist, one of the things that I found uh, extremely useful was the professional development seminar, which the Women in Nephrology organizes every year. Uh, It was a two-day course, and it it showed me that I was not alone in, in trying to persevere and move forward, and there was more than one way to move forward, that there was not just the one way I learned where I was a trainee, but there was more than one avenue to advance. Uh, So I think support at every level is important.
0: Let's talk for a moment about what the timeline's going to be, what the next five or 10 years are going to look like in nephrology. What do you think is going to be the biggest next advance? With my interest in dialysis,
2: I think the greatest um, opportunity for improvement in which we are investing at this time uh, is improvements around transitions of care. Whether it is transition from a teenager to an adult with kidney disease or it is transition of an individual who has advanced chronic kidney disease who's gonna start dialysis therapy to weigh the value of starting dialysis for an individual compared and how to prepare them if you choose to decide that that's what the way to go is to transitions from a hospital from different healthcare settings to the end of life care. I think uh, there's a lot of interest in health services research in advancing the agenda of improving patient safety and optimize health outcomes.
0: So are you telling me that with all that we know about material science, nanomedicine, that we have to stick with the same dialysis platform we have today? Are you telling me that in 10 years, we won't have something much better than what we've lived with for the last 30 years, 40 years?
2: There are devices that are in development at this time, that potentially could be portable dialysis devices that provide renal replacement without being tethered to a device either at home or in center. But I think we are, for a five year horizon, I think that seems premature. For a 10 or 20 year horizon, (laughs) I think that is quite feasible for us to be there.
3: I think the goal might be that in 20 years, nobody will ever have to attend dialysis so that we prevent kidney disease progression first, and second, that we further improve kidney transplant and that we further are able to, to get more organs into the transplant and programs. Because I f- do think that dialysis is it's not a good option for our patients. So if we can prevent dialysis, this would be a big goal for phrology.
1: I feel that the most important thing will be to reverse progression, because we don't know when injury starts for most people we see. For the vast majority of people, they get referred to us with ongoing, if not advanced kidney disease. And I think some of the beginnings of what we can do to reverse fibrosis, to even think about a way to... Open nephrons that look like dead nephrons would be very important. A very exciting session with standing room only that I left to come here was the session on regeneration. Alan Davidson from New Zealand talked about regeneration in fish. Of course, there's no way presently to have mammals regenerate nephrons, but there are clues that I think will revolutionize what we do. And I think that is incredibly important. I think also there will be always a role for dialysis in various forms in people with sepsis, in people with acute kidney injury, and in natural disasters that we can never predict.
2: If I could just, I mean, I think one of the, I agree with the goal of trying to prevent progression and reverse the progression of disease, but that ties back to what we were talking about, healthcare policy and healthcare delivery, and health services research. 45% of patients that start dialysis in the United States have never seen a nephrologist. They've never had an opportunity for intervention of all the intervention strategies that we know. So that is why uh, I am not sure that uh, we are, at this time, ready to translate our advances in science to prevent the need for dialysis completely. And this is not something that is unique to the United States in Europe. The statistics are about a third of patients that start dialysis have never seen a nephrologist. If we don't change anything that we do in the delivery of health care, those 45% of patients will still need dialysis. Right.
0: It's public awareness. It's public Everybody awareness. Everybody needs to ask their physician at some point, uh, hey, doc, how are my kidneys? What's my uh, kidney mm-hmm. function? Otherwise, we're going to remain having people stuck with no choice but dialysis or transplantation unless regenerative medicine really can help us build a new, a new glomerulus and a new tubule. Well, thank you all for joining us. This is Ron Falk for the American Society of Nephrology. Have a great day.